0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Welcome once again to GYC, and uh, thank you for coming to the seminar, and uh, not this seminar, just Thanks for coming, period, to GYC and any seminar. Um, I always enjoy the seminars of GYC. It's always a little bit of a a, a very painful process to decide which ones you're not going to go to, you know, Um, because there's so many that are good, and um, you you want to to be at all of them. Thankfully, we have recordings, and that's a blessing to be able to go and attend others later, in effect. Um, But today we're going to be taking a look at the interpretation of Scripture and how we can understand Scripture. Um, I hope this is something that's practical for you. Um, We've laid a foundation over the last three seminars. We started by talking about the importance of the Word of God, the power that is in the Word of God. We talked about how the Bible is the tool through which God converts us. Peter says we're born again through a a, 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 a an incorruptible seed, the Word of God, which lives and abides forever, we talked about how the Bible is the agent of cleansing. so when ezekiel thirty six verse twenty five says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, you'll be cleansed of all your filthiness and of your idols. Uh, that water that he said he would sprinkle upon us is actually a symbol of God's word working in our hearts and lives. Because John fifteen three, Jesus said, You are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Ephesians chapter 5, um, the washing of water by the word is how God purifies the church, purifies us. So the word is very, very important. And the word of God has power to change lives. Human words don't. I could talk here all day long, and I could say a lot of very good things, but my words are not creative. They do not have that kind of power. God's Word is creative, right? And so when God's Word contacts our lives and we begin to allow it to do its work, we are changed. Our characters are transformed, and we become who God wants us to be. And I believe if there's anything important in the future of GYC. If there's one thing that I would wish for the future of GYC and GYCers, I should say, it's that we are a part of God's final people who demonstrate to the world the character of God. The message is important, but the message is simply an intellectual reflection of who God is. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. And so God wants us to be changed. Um, I won't preach that whole sermon all over again, um, but last, the last hour, the next uh, second hour, we looked at the nature of revelation and inspiration, how the The way we understand Scripture came into being and how it is then interpreted and applied to us is the foundation for how we interpret the Bible. In the last hour, we talked about a brief history of biblical interpretation. So today, we're talking about letting the Word speak. And what I'm going to do is something a little different here. We're going to be looking in our Bibles. I hope you brought your Bible. If you don't, I hope you have an electronic version of it. Um, We're going to be looking at our Bibles at six major principles of biblical interpretation, okay? And we're going to find those in the Bible, for the most part. We're going to be looking in the Bible. We're going to try to understand um, how those work, and I'm going to try to give you some illustrations. We're going to look at some Bible verses that illustrate the different types of Scriptures, the different ways we can understand it, and then maybe we'll even um, have time afterwards to have some questions. If you have questions over specific passages or types of passages or so forth, we can, we can look at that. Just so you know, sort of the scope of to, today's last hour, tomorrow we're going to be looking at principles of prophetic interpretation. So if you have questions about prophecy, that would be the time to ask them or to come back for more. And finally, we're going to be talking tomorrow, uh, uh, Sabbath, afternoon about how to have a uh, a more vibrant devotional life, your personal state of the Scriptures, how you can form habits and put into practice things that will be helpful for you there. So, before I begin, I want to just mention a couple of things. The Adventist church has struggled over the last 50 years or so with the issue of biblical interpretation. If you're not aware, even over the last five to ten years, we've had a bit of a discussion over biblical interpretation. Um, I happened to sit on, not, not to open Pandora's box, but I happened to sit on a GC committee that was called the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. And um, this was an opportunity for people from very different viewpoints to talk about the issue of ordination and particularly as it related to our last general conference session, the subject of women's ordination. Okay? So we're not going to go down that path today. That's not what we're talking about. But ultimately, it really did come down. The different views that existed in that group really did come down to natures of revelation and inspiration and methods of biblical interpretation. How are we, We're both looking at the same passage. How do we come to very, very different meanings, understandings, or, or applications of it? It had to do with biblical interpretation. Um, That's not to say that all on one side are right and all on one side are 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 wrong. It's not to say that everybody on one side is using the wrong methods of biblical interpretation, but there's clearly some differences among us and how we view the Scriptures. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, Back in the 1970s, uh, after the Ford crisis, the Desmond Ford crisis, we actually addressed this issue. This is something that was put together by the Biblical Research Committee at that time, it was called, of the General Conference. It was edited by Gordon Hyde, and it's basically, it's called A Symposium on Biblical Hermeneutics. Um, and uh, this, this, this came about as in 1974 as a result of um, some of the controversy that was going on in the church at that time. Um, in more recent times, what we call the Biblical Research Institute has, um, has released another volume, very similar. It's called Understanding Scripture, and it is edited by George W. Reed. And um, this is a number of theologians, thought leaders, professors in the Adventist church have addressed issues of interpretation. If you want further information about how to interpret the Bible, this is written, I would say, from a somewhat academic point of view, but I think a layman can understand it. It's not easy reading. It's not what you just pick up and you're like, oh, you can't put it down. You know, it's more like, oh, I need to understand better how to interpret the Psalms. There's a whole chapter in here about how to interpret the Psalms and the different way, the different structures that are used. And if you, I think if you spent your time with it, you would find it to be helpful. Some of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from this book and particularly from a chapter in this book um, that is written by... um, I want to say it's written by Eckhard Mueller, called Guidelines for the Principles of Interpretation. So I just wanted to, to make that very, very clear here from the beginning. This is called Understanding Scripture in Adventist Approach. Um, in the back of this, you'll find another document that is often referenced. It's been referenced at the general conference session. It was certainly referenced in our discussions on ordination. And um, this is what they sometimes call the Rio document. At the annual council uh, that was held in Rio de Janeiro, there was a um, a document voted that the Adventist church said, this is how we view scripture, and this is how we will choose to interpret it. And this is the guideline still in the Adventist church today that is used um, as sort of the gold standard um, for how we can interpret scripture. This was at the 1986 annual council meeting in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And um, that's included as an appendix in the back of this book. Um, unfortunately, people choose to interpret that Rio document differently as well. So, so two different camps both say we're using the Rio principles, um, but they're coming to different conclusions. What I'm trying to say to you today is this is a pretty important topic, right? And um, what, what I hope we'll be sharing today will not only be accurate and correct, but I hope it'll be helpful, not just from a theological point of view, but from your personal study of the scriptures. So let's bow our heads forward a prayer as we begin. Father, we just thank you that we can study. We thank you that you've given us your word. We pray that you'll help us to rightly divide it and to come to a a better understanding of it and to apply it to our lives. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So basically, what I'm going to be doing here today, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at the Bible and we're going to be seeing these six principles and um, how we can see them applied or illustrated in the Bible. So the first, the first principle of biblical interpretation is turning to God in prayer. Turning to God in prayer. Can you read that? I don't know why it's looking sort of faint on us here, but, um, and we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 as an illustration of why this is so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. And today I'm, I have with me here this small Bible. I've just been reading it the last year or so. It's the English Standard Version. There are some places that I really like it and some places I don't like it as well. But we're going to see what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. This is what it says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God... For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what this is saying, the very first principle of biblical interpretation is that spiritual things are spiritually spiritually understood. That is to say, it doesn't matter so much how smart you are, you hear what I'm saying? It doesn't matter so much how smart you are, but where your heart is when you approach Scripture. You can be the most brilliant mind on the planet with a high IQ off the charts, you know, a member of the the Mensa Society and all the rest, perfect scores on your college entrance exams or MCATs or whatever you want to call it. You can have an intellect that's off the charts, but if your heart is not in the right place, you may not be able to understand spiritual things because spiritual things are spiritually discerned, right? So the very first thing is to bathe your study of the Scriptures in prayer. I want to explain to you why I think this is important. I used to pray a prayer something like this. Maybe you've prayed a prayer like this before. Lord, help me to know what your will is for my life. Has anybody ever prayed a prayer like that? Now, nothing against that. I think it's an important and a correct prayer to pray. But, but, why would there be a but attached to that? Huh? But, what I've come to realize is that God is very capable of showing me His will for my life. Much more capable than I am of following it. See what I'm saying? So, it's sort of like the bottleneck here, the limiting factor in God's will being poured into me is not so much His ability to pour it as my ability to accept it. So I've come to pray a little different prayer. Lord, help me to be willing to follow your will when I see it in my life. Because generally, I'm just saying from my own experience, maybe I'm just hard-headed and really sort of stubborn or something. But generally, if I'm willing, God's able to show me in really relatively short order. The problem is often I'm sort of like Balaam. You remember Balaam? Balak sent princes to him. Come and curse Israel. God said, nothing doing. You can't because they're blessed, right? Balak thought, oh, they must not have offered him enough money. So he sent more important princes back with more money, offers of more money. And what did Balaam do? Well, I can't go if God doesn't let me. That was so far so good. But then he said, stay here again overnight. I'm going to pray about it some more. Sometimes we already know what God's will is but we just aren't willing to accept it. And so we say, you know, I'm still studying on that. I'm not quite convicted yet, but really deep inside, we know, but we're not willing. So my prayer is more, Lord, show me, help me to have a heart that is willing. That's called a spiritual heart, right? That's what we need. So if we want to understand truth, we need to have that experience. The second step, in interpreting the Bible, the historical biblical method of interpretation is in reading the text. Now we could look at a couple of passages here, we'll, we'll turn to them, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, real quickly, get your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3 and we're going to see what, um, what the Bible says about reading. Um, is it important or is it not? Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, this is what it says, are you there? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's in it, for the time is near. So there's a blessing for those who do what? Read, right? So we got to read the Bible to be able to interpret the Bible. This should make sense, right? This isn't isn't rocket science. If we want to understand the Bible, we have to read the Bible. If you're not reading the Bible, you're not going to understand the Bible. Um, It's sort of like Mark Finley used to like to say, uh, probably still does, but he says, God can never bless the sermon that's never preached, right? He can never bless the Bible study that's never given. He can never bless the piece of literature that's never handed to somebody. Well, I'm going to tell you, God can never bless your Bible study when you don't read the Bible, right? That's where we've got to start, reading the text, Luke chapter 4 and verses 16 through 19. I'm encouraging you here. We're already a third of the way through our principles. But they are going to get a little more complicated as we go along. Luke chapter 4, and not complicated, just a little more explanation. Verses 16 through 19, this is Jesus on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He enrolls the the scroll and he founds the place where it is written. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the accept the year of the Lord's favor. And um, by the way, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the turn and sat down. And then after he sat down, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So basically what you're seeing is Jesus himself gave us an example of reading his Bible, right? And not only that, but of applying it. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. So, we have to read the Bible. Now, at this point, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do I read, right? Now, if we, were, if we were talking from a theological perspective here, we would have reading the text would involve reading the original language text, but most of us aren't Hebrew and Greek experts, right? So, we're not going to go back and find our interlinear Bible necessarily and start reading that or our Greek New Testament and start reading that We're going to read a translation of the Bible in the English language. Presumably, most of us here speak English or read English as our primary language. Um, Others have another chosen language of uh, mother tongue. But we're going to choose a a Bible that is most familiar to us. Um, Growing up and even still, my my choice of translation was always the King James Bible. I study from a King James Bible. The these and thous don't bother me at all. There are some problems. You know, the King James Bible is not a perfect translation. Um, other people, particularly younger people who didn't grow up with the these and thous and therefores and whithersoever's and all the rest, they, um, they prefer maybe a new King James Bible, which has the, the these turned to use and, the, and so forth. Um, that, that's a little easier to read. What I would say is to get, get a good translation of the Bible to read. That means a translation that is from the original language, that is taken not by one translator, but by a group of translators, and is a known to be a value, uh, uh, or dependable translation. Um, I'm not going to get angry at anybody for reading the Bible if it's not the translation of my choice. That's basically what I've come to understand. I think if you're going to study the Bible and study it properly, you're going to come to truth whether you use the right translation, quote-unquote right translation, or not. Um, but I choose, I choose several translations that are uh, dependable. Now, today, you may have your personal Bible that you study with, but you can always go online and, you know, go to just BibleGateway.com. I love Bible Gateway because you can just, with a couple clicks, you can, it's, it's not like a theologian's website or something, but it's just, you can show a verse, and then you can see that verse in all the English translations. And... Um, you can, you can show a passage and just choose a different translation. You can do a lot. Uh, your phone apps are going to be the same. You can look at a number of different translations. So when I say read the text, I'm not just talking about, you know, just surface reading. Choose a good Bible. Use that good Bible for studying. But when you read the text, keep reading. Go to another translation. Read something. And, and if you don't, um, if you're wondering, for example, I'm not an expert in Hebrew and Greek. I've... I've studied some, but I don't read them fluently or anything like that. Um, sometimes I have questions. For example, last week or so, I was reading um, in my ESV, the English Standard Version, which I find often puts things, especially the stories of Jesus and so forth, in a very, it's, I found it to be quite accurate, but I was reading the book of Revelation. Revelation is always confusing to translators, because <laughs> if you're not, I don't want this to come out the wrong way. If you don't understand what the what the prophecy is talking about, you're going to have a hard time making it. Trans, you're going to have a, translating it the best way. Put it that way. I was reading in Re- Revelation chapter 14 how the 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever He goes, for they stand without fault before the throne of God. And that's what the King James says. The ESV says they stand blameless. Period. I thought, wait a minute, before the throne of God. Was that in the Bible and the King James translated it? Or was it not there and the ESV dropped it? How did this happen? Because in my view, that before the throne of God is pretty important. 144,000 are living during the time of the investigative judgment. When we read it from an Adventist perspective, they're standing before the throne of God in the pre-Advent judgment. So I went to BibleHub.com. Anybody can do this. They have an interlinear function, which back on my shelf at home, I've got a interlinear bible you know those big old looks like a big old strong's concordance but basically it's got the the hebrew or the greek written there and then above it the english translation of it and the strong's numbers so you can look them up but biblehub.com has the same thing interlinear bible and i said okay revelation chapter 14 in the interlinear version sure enough the greek says before the throne of god this translation just dropped that whole thought wrong like i didn't like that wasn't too happy So sometimes when you compare translations, you can come to a better understanding of a certain passage. So read the text. Um, The third step is to investigate the context. Um, Let's look at a a couple of examples here, another biblical example here. Real quickly, um, Matthew 4 and verse 6. You remember that Satan came to Jesus and he tempted Jesus. And this is what Satan said in the great temptation of Jesus. He said, verse six, the devil uh, quotes scripture. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, where is, where is, uh, Where is Satan quoting from? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 91, and particularly verses 11 and 12. And in Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12, is the context about if you want a really cool experience, go throw yourself off a mountain? Or is the context about when you're persecuted and evil is coming your way, God's going to step in and intervene? Is there a difference? Is there a difference between throwing yourself off a mountain and trying to claim God's promise and uh, and being sure that even when we're persecuted, God's going to be there with us. There is a difference, isn't there? There certainly is a difference. And so the context is very, very important. So let's look at what kind of context we're going to investigate. We're going to investigate the historical context. The historical context. What was going on during that time when this passage was written? What was the situation? These are very important questions we have to ask, particularly... You, you, you've heard of the debate over whether women should keep silent in church, right? If you have a question, ask your husbands at home. And um, some people read that and they say, well, then women shouldn't be talking. They shouldn't be. Well, if you take it literally plain reading of that text, you shouldn't. They shouldn't even be singing special music, I suppose. Right. I mean, they're not silent. Um but when you look at the historical context, you come up with a little different insight into what the scripture might mean, okay? We haven't gotten there yet, but perhaps when you investigate this, the, this, the, the context, you realize, hey, in Paul's day, as in many churches in the Eastern world still today, the men and women don't sit together, right? And if you look at the context, this isn't the historical context, this is more of the literary context now. What, what Paul says a few verses later, he says, let all things be done decently in order. He says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches, right? So that's the context. Historical context, they're sitting in different places. It's not hard for me to imagine that the reality is the women would start talking. And there's a little buzz over there on that side of the church, or in India, they would be towards the back. The men would be up front, and then there's the women, and then there's the children. Um, in some other cultures, it's on one side or the other side. And once the women are talking and they're not really listening, they're distracting each other. And then they have a question to ask their husband. Where's their husband seated? Not right next to them. They didn't whisper in his ear. Hey, honey, did you bring the the you know the pot roast in for lunch? God is not the author of confusion, right? Let things be done decently in order. So when you look at the historical context, all of a sudden you begin to say, oh. Paul was riding to a church where there was segregated seating. Paul was riding to a church where there was obviously confusion going on during the services. There's, there's that, that argument that could be made. So investigate the historical context. So I had, an, I had. I'll give you another example here, and you know sometimes when I bring up these topics, I know I'm bringing up controversial ones. There's somebody's going to write me after they listen to this on AudioVerse or maybe even here today and say. I don't think women should preach in church or speak in church, but that's really not our topic. We're talking about biblical interpretation, right? So I'm not going to get lost in the weeds here. But I had someone very recently talk to me, or actually it was a post on Facebook, but they were like, you know what? In essence, they were saying that, you know, Christmas trees are banned by Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 10. If you haven't seen it, it says that. I mean, Jeremiah chapter 10 pretty much says we shouldn't have Christmas trees. But my church, we put up a Christmas tree in the foyer. And uh, on that Christmas tree, the decorations are little cards. And they are things that the school needs because we have a K-3 school. And so people take off a decoration. They say, oh, I'll buy this pencil set or I'll buy this for the school. And that's, that's our Christmas tree. It's sort of like a gift tree for the school. But this is, this is obviously not supposed to be that way because um, the, um, the, uh, the Bible says that we shouldn't have Christmas trees. I think it's Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm in 11, that's why. So he talks about, learn not the way of the nations, verse two, go on, go on. For the customs of the people are vanity, verse three. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with gold, silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in the cucumber field. They cannot speak and so forth and so on. So here you have it, right? They cut down a tree in the forest. They bring it into their house. It becomes an idol. And um, we should not have Christmas trees. Well, this is my question. What was the historical context, right? By the way, working with an axe doesn't necessarily mean that it gets set up and decorated. It means it gets turned into an idol and covered with silver and gold. That's what it means, They were talking, he's talking about making a tree into an idol. Now, in their day, was there a problem with physical idols being used as instruments of worship in the pagan religions? Yes. Should God's people do that? No. Should you bring a wooden idol and make it a shrine to worship in your house? The answer is no, right? That's the historical context. It's sort of like, I, I told this person, I said, you know, to read that and use no interpretation, just say that that means that we shouldn't have Christmas trees, is sort of like reading the second commandment, no likeness of anything on the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters that are in the earth, and saying that we shouldn't have teddy bears. The context was obviously worship, right? This context is worship. By the way, if you're worshiping your Christmas trees, I'll talk to you afterwards, but for me, I don't believe that the Christmas tree means that for Christians today. Not in my church, not when we're using it as a celebration. Yes, it may have had a pagan back. Oh, but it used to be pagan. Listen, so did Monday, Tuesday, when the names of the week. They were honoring the pagan deities when they said those names. Saturday, Saturn, Sunday, the sun, Monday, the moon, Tuesday, Mars, and so forth and on. So, the question I always ask them, are you a pagan because they use those words? you use those days of the week? Or do they mean something different to you today? Um, One person said to me, well, you know what? I I, I just call it first day, second day, third day. (laughs) You go ahead. (laughs) Never heard you say that before, but you go ahead. Um, The reality is that those days, those names are no longer a part of, of pagan worship. Not for me, not when I use them. So at some point, the meaning changes, doesn't it? Even if it used to be pagan, it's not pagan for me any longer. And um, it's not a part of my worship. So we're going to look at the historical context. We're going to look at the literary context. And when we talk about the literary context, we're talking about the passage around it. We're talking about the context of the whole book. Okay? We're talking about the whole, the whole Bible becomes the context of a verse, isn't it? I mean, really. And by the way, as Seventh-day Adventists, the greatest context is beyond the Bible, It's what we call the great controversy motif, the great controversy theme, understanding good and evil, how it came about, how it's all going to end. We interpret in the context of all of that. So when I have a verse and I'm trying to understand it, I say, what are the verses around it? What is it saying? What is the impact of the chapter? What about the whole book? This is the context. That we take into consideration when we study a passage. And now we also look for certain things in the context. We look for what we call motifs. Is there a particular theme that this author is bringing back over and over and over again? Um, this is something that he really likes or she really likes to emphasize. This is something that we can look for. The characters that are involved, the locations, the time frame chiasms. We'll talk more about chiasms in a little bit. Um, Progressions, thematic parallels, parallel reports. We can look at other stories. For example, if one gospel writer, whenever I preach a sermon on a parable of Jesus or on a miracle of Jesus or just on a story that's in the New Testament, I like to look at all of the gospel writers that share the description of that story or that parable or that miracle, right? We have what we call the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they tend to sort of cover the same topics, the same miracles, the same stories. Not all of them, of course, but they're similar gospels. Then you have one that sort of doesn't fit in with those three, and that's the gospel according to John. And one of the reasons people believe that John wrote his gospel differently was that he had the advantage of seeing the other gospels and seeing what they had left out. And saying, I'm going to share it from my point of view, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I'm going to share the things that were sort of missing in the other disciples, in the other Gospels. We think of those as being the foundation of the New Testament and other books are written later, but actually, John the Revelator wrote the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, right? And um, it's now believed that was one of the first books that he wrote, and the Gospel of John would have been written after, in fact, the book of Revelation was written. Very interesting. We don't think of it that way, but that's the reality. John writes his gospel at the very end of his life, and um, he had the advantage of seeing what was there. So we look at the parallel reports, and we see if there's repetition. And um, we're going to come back to some of these uh, literary themes or literary um, techniques uh, in a little while when we talk about analyzing and interpreting and applying the text. The fourth step is analyzing the text. Now, um, we won't take the time to turn to these verses, but basically in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, God promises Abraham that God, he, would bless his, he would bless all nations through his seed, right? And uh, later on, uh, Romans 4, Paul is going to use the same passage to argue for justification by grace through faith. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness, right? Um, but in Galatians three, he uses the same passage, but he uses, he uses it differently. He uses it not as an illustration of righteousness by faith. He uses he he simply he simply emphasizes the seed in Genesis fifteen six is singular, not plural, and he's talking about how Jesus is the promised seed, singular, who was to come and to bless all nations and to save us, okay? So we analyze the text. How does, how does the, this is, this is an illustration, I should say, of how Paul used the Bible, used the text in different ways at different times, but obviously he had studied it and he had analyzed it and he had thought about it. We're going to look for certain structures. And um, this is where it gets really interesting. Um, certain structures that can help us to understand the Bible, There's outlines. And by the way, how do you know if there's sort of an outline, a very logical progression of what the Bible passage you're studying is at the time? How do you know that? Besides looking at a commentary, that wouldn't be my first choice. One of the ways you can study that passage is to outline it yourself. Right? This verse, the main thought is this. The next verse, this. The next verse, this. Now let's see how they progress. Is you know, is he talking about the sins that we should avoid? And he lists four of them. The right, the, the, the good things that we should include in our character. And he lists those. You see, you can outline a passage yourself. It's actually a good illustration, a good tool, I should say, for understanding and exploring the passage. So an outline. An acrostic. Did you know that numerous Bible passages are actually acrostics? Um, <clears throat> so you have, for example, Psalm 119, the most famous acrostic in the Bible. There are 22 Hebrew letters in the alphabet. The first eight verses begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The next eight verses begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next eight verses begin with a third letter. We don't get that because we're not reading it in Hebrew, right? But Psalm 119 has 176 verses because it has eight verses beginning with each of the 22 letters of the alphabet, it's an acrostic. And so we see that and we start thinking, wow, this was really creative. This was an art form. This was something they thought a lot about. And um, we can study it and understand that from that that, uh, perspective. Inclusion. Inclusion simply means there's a passage and it begins by making a statement and it ends by making the same statement. That happens quite a bit in the Old Testament, actually. The Hebrews, by the way, the Hebrews loved literature, Like this was not just, oh, I'm going to write something down like a first grader writes it down. When they wrote the Bible, the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament was written either in poetry or in some sort of a literary form that showed immense forethought. Now, if you were here earlier, you realize that God inspired the prophet. He didn't dictate the words. So I don't believe God told, you know, David to make an acrostic in Psalm 119. David had the ideas and he used his creative juices to convey the message of God in a very artistic form. Um, so an inclusion is where a statement is made and then maybe there's proof given for it and it ends with the same, st- it's like an envelope, you know, on both sides, like bookends, that's an inclusion. And we find that in scripture as well. We have chiasms, we're going to talk a little bit about a chiasm, in fact, um, um I might as well talk about it now. Let me see. I thought I had it right here handy, but this is a chiasm. We'll have to come back to that in a minute. I got them out of order. This is a chiasm. This is uh, Amos chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Okay, got that? But now we notice the next phrase says, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter Gilgal, Or cross into Beersheba. You see that A, B, C, D over there? Now, notice what the the author did. This wasn't just by accident. This happened over and over throughout the Old Testament. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile. Do you see that matches that uh, C up there? We call that C prime, right? And Bethel shall come to nothing, B prime. And then it ends matching A, but seek the Lord and life, or he will break out against the house of Joseph. Like fire. By the way, in that in that example, we see not only an a uh, chiasm, but we see an acrostic, an inclusion as well, don't we? It starts with a thought, it ends with the same thought, bookended together, a chiasm and an inclusion. And this is all throughout Scripture. You don't, they don't. The chiasms particularly don't jump out at you. They take, they they require some study. By the way, very interesting. I'll just give you this little tidbit. According to um, to Dr. Richard Davidson's study, a professor at the Andrews University Seminary. Um, he, He has studied the book of Leviticus. I shouldn't even say that. He has studied the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. Which book is in the middle? Leviticus is in the middle, right? And he believes the books of Moses, the five books of Moses, form a huge chiasm. The book of Leviticus is in the middle. And the Hebrew thinking, what they usually, I'm not sure about in this instance, but usually what they really wanted to emphasize was right there in the center of the chiasm. Okay? This, was, this was the meat of the matter. They would head towards that. Leviticus was in the center of the chiasm of the five books of Moses. But when he studied the book of Leviticus, he found that there was a chiasm in the the, um, the first half of the book, you might say, talking about the blood and the sacrifices, we might summarize that basically as talking about justification. The second half of the book, rules and behavior, we might summarize that as sanctification. And I don't have this chiasm to show you right here today, but ultimately what he showed is Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement, is the apex of the chiasm of the book of Leviticus and of the five books of Moses. It's all pointing, focusing towards Day of Atonement, what's going to happen in the last days of earth's history in the heavenly sanctuary? Very, very interesting study. It's a chiasm. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, other books um, include chiasms as well. And um, this is something that we can usually, excuse me, we usually need to spend quite a bit of time studying, but this is only one of, the, one of the tools that we can see. Parallelism. I want you to take out your Bibles and we're going to look at some examples of parallelism now, Okay. This is important because if you, have, if you have a Bible, how many of you have a Bible that's a relatively modern translation? Like more than, like, not King James, I guess, or Revised Version, if it's one of the more modern. How many of you have that? When you look, when you look at the Bible, when you look, 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 at, look with me at Psalms, for example. Psalms or Isaiah or Proverbs or what, any of them. But if you look at Psalms or Job... And you look at these verses, is the justification centered or is it over on the side or full? Is it centered like it looks like a poem written in your Bible? Look, look with me. You have a Bible? It's centered. If it's centered, that's a fairly modern Bible. And what it's done is the, 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 the um, designers of the Bible is, have said, look, even though in English it doesn't sound like a poem, when we read it in the Hebrew, it was a poem. This was not... This was not narrative. This was poetry. And so they're going to write it as if it were a poem. So if I look at Psalms, almost the entire book of Psalms is center justified because it was written as a poem. Okay? So when you look at particularly poems, you will find that in the Hebrew, uh, Proverbs, Psalms, Job, uh, other passages, you will find a lot of these following techniques being used. parallelism. Let's look at a couple examples of synonymous parallelism. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20, all right? Are you with me? Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20. Proverbs 1 and verse 20. We notice that it's center justified. It's a, it's a poem. And we're going to see an example here of parallel, uh, uh, synonymous parallelism. By the way, of all the parallelism in the Bible, the Jewish writers wrote, used parallelism a lot, synonymous parallelism is the most common, okay? So, this is what you see. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. You see what what, what the Bible's doing here? It says something about wisdom, and then it basically says the same thing in another way. And you could read throughout, uh, just read verse 24, because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Do you understand what the, what the Bible writer is doing? The first part of the verse, he's saying, he's saying something, and then the second saying, he's repeating it, says the same thing, just in different words. Now, this is very interesting to us because sometimes it can help us to understand a little better what the first part of the verse means when we see what the second part of the verse means, or vice versa, right? We can see those parallelism. We also have antithetic parallelism. We'll look at a couple examples of that. Proverbs chapter 14, 14 and verse 30. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 30. We notice a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Um, I think that is better known as a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones, right? You see that's parallelism, but it's antithetic. It's opposites. It's like an antonym. So um, this is the opposite that is being expressed here. Um, Chapter 16 and verse 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the ways of death. Antithetic parallelism. So this is a technique used over and over in the Bible. So as we're analyzing the text, we're looking for these things. They help us to be able to understand it as well. We also have what's called synthetic parallelism, basically because of this, therefore that, right? And uh, we'll look at an example of that in Psalm 28 and verse 6. Psalm 28 and verse 6. This is also found, these last two are found less frequently. Um, Synonymous parallelism, is, uh, as I mentioned, is the most common found in the books of poetry. 28 and verse 6. Blessed be the Lord... For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. So why are we praising the Lord? Because, right? This is a a cause and effect of of our uh, relationship that we see here. Psalm 119 and verse 9. We see another synthetic parallelism expressed here. Psalm 119 verse 9. And of course, these are just examples. What you can do is you can pick up your Bible and you can start reading through Psalms or Proverbs and start just recognizing, start identifying which ones are synonymous parallelisms, which ones are antithetical parallelisms, which ones are synthetic parallelism. Uh, 119 and verse 9, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? says, by, is that right? Am I in the wrong verse? How can a young man keep his way pure? My Bible says, by guarding it according to your word. Um, by taking heed, according to your word, the King James says. And by the way, in my Bible, I don't know if you, any of you in your Bible, you're, if you have a newer translation, it actually says in 119, Aleph over the first eight verses, Beth and Gimel and Daleth and Hay and Wa and so forth as the letters of the Hebrew alphabet that are being represented with each of those eight verses. So these are these are things that we can look at as we analyze the text, as we try to come to a better understanding of it. What was the literary form being employed here? Was this a confession, a thanksgiving, a hymn, a royal psalm, eschatological song, talking about what's going to happen at the last days, Um, proverbs, parables, miracle stories, passion narratives, admonitions, litigations or arguments, um, apologetics, you might say, um, that the Bible is using, or homilies. what's What's the literary form that's being used? This is another question that we can ask as we analyze the text, but we have to move move on quickly here. I think we have 15 minutes left, don't we? So, And finally, we can have, as we analyze the text, we can have word studies. Now, this is sometimes a very favorite of people who are studying the Bible, is to look at words. And they'll take a strong concordance, and they'll take the word glory, or they'll take the word light, or they'll take the word of love, or something else, and they'll find other verses that say something similar using the same word, and they'll say, aha, this means this here, so this must mean that there. All I'm going to say to that is it's very important that if you're doing word studies, that you take some time to dig down and to see if actually it's the same word being used in the original language. Because sometimes we get too excited over the same word being used in the English language when the Bible writers had no, they didn't even use the same word in the original language. So, and that's not hard to do. Um, you can. You, all you have to do is, like I said, biblehub.com, go to an interlinear, see what, what the Strong's number is there, what word in the Hebrew, what word in the Greek. If you have a Strong's concordance, that's easy enough to do. Um, if you have some of the more powerful phone apps or computer software, it's easy to do to see what is the original language there before you go into detail, word study. So we're talking about the historical biblical method. Um, we've looked at the first four principles of biblical interpretation. The last one, four, number four, was analyzing the text. Now we're looking at applying the text. Number five. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 11. We're going to notice an example of biblical application. So the, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's studied the stories of the Old Testament. And he's now going to bring them down to his day and apply them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's verse 6. Verse 11 says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So basically, it's not good enough just to read the Bible and to try to understand what it meant for them or what the story was all about then. What we need to do is take that story or that Bible passage and we need to... Find a way to bring it down to our day to learn something from it and to apply it to our lives. And so that's what we're talking about here in this fifth step, uh, applying the text. One of the ways we can do that is by asking leading questions, questions like this. What does God want me, want to tell me with this passage? How does it affect my devotion, my commitment to Him, my spiritual life, my insights into God's character and my obedience? How can I respond to his message? So this is asking questions. How does this impact my life today? So if I were to just take some of the examples we've talked about, we read in Jeremiah chapter 10 about not bringing an idol into our home, an idol of wood and silver and decorated and all the rest. I'll be honest with you. I don't think that's my real weakness, okay? I don't usually go down to the pagan temple and say, can I buy an idol? I don't usually go out in the, world, in the woods and cut down a tree and start making a beautiful crafted idol. And use. But is there something that I can apply to my life today from that passage? Jeremiah 10 we're talking about. right? Maybe the easiest way is just to read it and say, well, that's talking about Christmas trees. Don't cut down a tree and don't bring it into your house. That's what it says. That's a plain reading of Scripture. But the reality is, It's talking about false gods in your life, isn't it? It's talking about a shrine, something to be worshipped, that you shouldn't be worshipping. I don't know what that means for you. But for me, there's probably some application that I can make. I mean, the things. Sometimes it's material things that become idols, isn't it? Sometimes I wonder, honestly, as as I was reading this, studying this, Uh, and responding on Jeremiah 10, I said, I wonder how many people, how many homes. It should be saying, don't go to Best Buy and buy it and put it up in your living room and then sit around it and worship your idols on it. It might almost sound like a television or something, right? Um, You understand what I'm saying. We build a bridge. Once we understand what it was talking about in that day, we must then take the next step. And building a bridge down to our day and saying, what does this mean for me? Jeremiah 10, although it describes a practice that I don't involve, engage in. Animism, material idol worship, paganism. It still has a message and an application in my life today, right? And so that building that bridge is how we apply it down to our life. What does God want to tell me? Um... Uh, about my own spiritual life? How can I respond to his message? All right. The sixth and final step that we could t- touch on as far as interpreting the scriptures or using the historical biblical method is using resources. We won't look there, but Acts chapter 17, verse 28, Paul expresses familiarity with extra biblical sources. He was familiar with the Greek poets and their literature, Right? We can see that there's even some discussion in the Old Testament about some of the the literature available in their day. There's nothing wrong with reading outside of the Bible. Extra-biblical sources are not wrong. Obviously, the greatest extra-biblical source that I think can help us understand the Bible is using Ellen White's writings. In fact, if you come back on Sabbath afternoon, we'll be talking more about how we can use Ellen White's writings, particularly if you're just learning how to study the Bible, how you can use Ellen White's Bible not as a crutch to repl- Ellen White's writings, not as a crutch to replace the Bible, but as a tool to help you learn to study the Bible better. And um, I think it's very, very important. I've, I've been tremendously blessed by the what we as Adventists call the Spirit of Prophecy. It's really not the Spirit of Prophecy in that it's not. Ellen White is not the spirit of prophecy. It's a part of the spirit of prophecy. This is the spirit of prophecy too. This is the gift of prophecy. This is, this of, uh, this is the, the, the testimony of Jesus, and it's not limited to the writings of Ellen White. But Ellen White's writings have been a tremendous blessing to my life. We can also use concordances as tools. I remember there was one uh, friend of mine who was studying. He was just becoming a Christian, just becoming an Adventist, a very bright man and he um, he 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 was he, he had some of his family members who were Adventist, his wife's family members who were Adventist, and I happened to be visiting him along with some of his other family, Adventist family members, and he was studying, at that time, he was studying the state of the dead. He wanted to know, what does the Bible teach about the state of the dead? And um, one of my other relatives was there, and he said, oh, you want to learn what the Bible says about the state of the dead? Look Right here, amazingfacts.org, you can find this video by Doug Batchelor, and he, it's the, he breaks it down. Well, I'm not really interested in read, reading, a, you know, watching a video about it. Um, well, there's this, there's online, you can get the historicals, or you can get this uh, cartoon, you know, comic strip about the State of the Dead. And finally, my, uh, my friend said, look, I don't want to have any other source but the Bible. I want to see what the Bible says first. And he literally had a strong concordance. And he was looking up every word that he could think of about death and dying. And he was reading every verse in the Bible that had that, those words in them. And He wanted to see for himself what the Bible taught about death and dying. And I had to say I respected that. There's nothing wrong with just good old-fashioned reading the Bible. We sometimes jump to see what the commentaries say or what other people say instead of saying, what does the Bible say? Now, did it take a little while? I'll bet he spent six or eight hours. But it was six or eight hours well spent. Because when someone came along to him and said, what, you believe that about death? He didn't say, yeah, Doug Batchelor told me so. He said, my Bible says so. Because I read every single verse in the Bible about this. And that's the way I think we ought to study the Bible. Nothing, nothing wrong with reading it contextually or reading it exegetically, but we ought to be willing to sit down and say, hey, this is going to take me a while, but I want to know for myself, what does the Bible say? And, uh, and he did that. So other sources, concordance can be very, very helpful. Um, Bible dictionaries can be very helpful from this perspective. A Bible dictionary, you can look up a place like uh, Gilead, you're, you're studying the prophet Elijah. You want to know about Gilead or Tishbite. What does Tishbite mean? Or Zarephath. Where was Zarephath in the country of the Zidonians? Um, a Bible dictionary will have right there at your fingertips a description where that city was, what it was known for. You know. So, By the way, you learn a lot of things, a good Bible dictionary, you didn't know that before. Um, I didn't. I didn't connect until I read in a Bible dictionary. I don't think that when Elijah was sent to hide with the wind, widow of Zarephath in the country of the Zidonians, this was actually the area of Sidon. Zidonians, is a Z but Sidon was the area it's, it's in. And guess whose dad was the king of the of Sidon? It was actually Jezebel. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that God has a sense of humor, because he sent the most wanted man in the world to the kingdom of Jezebel's father. Jezebel, the one who hated him the most, right? And he's hiding in Jezebel's own home country. He could have sent him anywhere, but he sent him to Zarephath. Now, how do you understand that well, a good Bible dictionary you look up those places, look up those names, and um, if you can find you can get you don 't have to buy a new expensive one if you ever go to old bookstores, the old Bible dictionaries are often some of the best by the way, Bible names and places haven 't changed much over the last two hundred years, so you can get a pretty old Bible dictionary and it 's still good stuff right and um, so Bible dictionaries are great tools. Uh, By the way, you can Google it too. Just be careful for your sources. There's all kinds of things on the internet, but there's reputable sources. Compare them, notice several of them, and you might be able to trust some of them as well. Commentaries would be the last place that I would turn to understand and apply a text, simply because I want to do my work first to see what God tells me before I trust what he has shown somebody else. All right, our time is up, and so I'm going to close with a word of prayer. I'm going to stay by for a few minutes if you would like to ask questions. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time to study. I pray that these six principles of the prophetic interpretation or biblical interpretation might be useful. In the next couple seminars, we talk about prophecy, end time prophecies and understanding them as we talk about how to have a personal devotional life. I pray that you'll bless us as well. We thank you that you've given us your word. Help us to rightly divide it be faithful students, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.